probably video and slide presentations on different biblical locations and just uh, try to see if we can't uh, take the Bible from black and white and put it in color for you on some things. And I think you all will enjoy that. Um, I've got some stuff that I'll probably be showing uh, for sure. I've got some stuff that I'll be showing from my trip to Israel. Uh, some footage that I haven't released or done anything with yet. Some pictures and things of some really interesting stuff. And I've just been uh, wanting to take the time to you know, put together some kind of presentation on it. Because a lot of interesting things that we got to see over there. And so uh, that will be coming real soon. So just uh, stay tuned. But we're going to finish up uh, the book of Micah in the next few weeks. But we're in chapter 5 today. In Micah chapter 5. And what I want to do... As we go through this chapter, uh, we need to remember just a couple things. First off, this, pro- this prophecy is primarily about judgment that was coming on them in that day from the Assyrians. We don't want to forget that. But like most prophecies that were about things that were soon to come for them, they also contain messianic prophecies about things very far into the future. And so when we're looking at the book of Micah, uh, we're, in fact, we're going to see a very famous prophecy in here that Jesus fulfilled, but that wasn't for like another 700 years that that was fulfilled. These prophecies that they were given had application in that day. It meant something to those people in that day. And I, it's so important that we get that because we often forget that when looking at Bible prophecy and then people, when they read uh, prophecies like in Matthew chapter 24, they ignore the fact that that prophecy was something very specific for people in that day. But yes, it did include things in the far distant future uh, that were about the second coming of Christ. Uh, that It's undeniable that it was about things in that generation. And it's also undeniable it was about things in the future. And some people try to make it all about the future. You're going to be an error. Some people try to make it all about the past. You're going to be an error there. And it would be the same thing too if in Micah chapter 5, because there were very specific prophecies that were in the far distant future, these people would have been in error if they would have looked at the, that prophecy and said, well, you know what, since that's in the far distant future, we don't have to worry about any of this. No, actually, they did need to worry about some of it because it was going to take place in their day. So always remember, the Bible is full of what it calls dark sayings. And so when we get overly literal on some of those things too, we also can go into error. People do that in prophecy. They get ultra-literal on things. Even in the book of Revelation, people, they, they, it's like there's a contest sometimes to see who can be the most literal. Well, the thing is, some of these things are clearly figurative. And if you get overly literal, you're going to go into error. So that there's, not, there's nothing wrong with interpreting a passage based on the results of how things played out. Because not all things were meant to be fully understood at that time. I promise everyone in here that when Jesus Christ returns, we're going to go and when we're all sitting together in the millennium, we're going to go back and we're going to read the book of Revelation and be like, you know what? Sure enough, the book of Revelation happened exactly as it said it was going to happen. But boy, we didn't have a lot of our details right. Without a doubt, that kind of thing is going to happen. And so there's a lot of things in prophecies that have already been fulfilled that, you know, if they would have taken them super literal in that day, and some people did, they would have gone into error. 
And so there's, there's nothing wrong with us when we're looking at our prophecies that are yet to come, trying to judge these things in the same way. I think it's really important that we do that. And we're going to do that a little bit as we go uh, through these. So remember, not all prophecies were meant to be fully understood at that time. And so when it, always remember when it comes to things that are yet to come, if it is in fact something that is yet to come, then, you know, we, we need to understand a lot of those sayings could still be dark sayings that the interpretation that we have come up with is probably more speculation than just Bible fact. And we do speculate more than we want to admit on Bible prophecy. So let's go ahead and jump into chapter 5 and look what it says in verse 1. It says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now, clearly, this is telling them to prepare for the battle that was coming. And we can even read about that battle that took place with Sennacherib, with the Assyrians coming on Jerusalem in the story of Hezekiah. It's, it's written in Isaiah. It's written in the Chronicles. Uh, we can definitely look at that story and see how this played out. But I don't think there's any doubt at all, too, when it's talking about them smiting the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek, that that is also a messianic prophecy about Jesus. It's a referring to the Assyrians coming and fighting them, smiting them as a nation. But it also is, I believe, it's messianic. It says in um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? So I think clearly what we're seeing there is he's telling them about how they're going to be smitten as a nation. It's also telling them about how the Messiah is going to be smitten. Their ruler, the one that their nation is all about. And let's always remember that the story of the Bible it's not a story of Israel. It's not a story of the Jews. It's a story of Jesus. The reason Israel was always so important was because of who was going to come from Israel. It was Jesus. He was what it was all about. And we see a lot of prophecies like that. In fact, in Hosea chapter 11, you don't have to turn to these. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. It looks like Israel's really important. And people will say, Israel is very important. God even called them his son. Okay, I will agree with that. But why did God call Israel his son? Why did God call Israel his firstborn? Because we see in Hosea 11, that wasn't talking about something that happened back before when they were in Egypt. But this is actually a prophecy about his son Jesus. And it says in Matthew 2.14, when he arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed, and departed in, uh, into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So understand, the reason God was calling Israel his firstborn wasn't so much because they're just this special nation in you know, that they're better than everybody else even still today. No, they were special because the seed was in them. And the seed came. And Jesus, while he was on earth, he had to, they had to flee from Herod. They went to Egypt. And then eventually God brought 
Jesus out of Egypt, and that was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Hosea chapter 11. You say, well, is it connected to what we see in Exodus when God pulled the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, it is connected because the children of Israel coming out of Egypt was a shadow of Jesus Christ coming out of Egypt. So understand the, the most important thing about Israel was Jesus Christ. And when we're elevating a physical people over Jesus Christ, you know, we've gotten things all backwards. Everything's all unbalanced. We don't want to do that. So verse 2, this is probably one of the most famous verses in all of Micah. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth hath been from old of everlasting. And I think this is probably one of the most clear messianic prophecies that even the scribes were able to get right. Because interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 2, we're not going to take time to go there, but when the wise men came to Herod and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen a star in the east. And Herod wanted to find out where this child was. And so what did he do? He told the scribes, find out where this child is supposed to be born. And they went to Micah and they write, they rightfully said, you know, that Bethlehem of Judea, it was written by the prophets. They actually got that right. But at the same time, they weren't there greeting Jesus with gold, frankincense and myrrh. What did, what did Herod end up doing? He ended up trying to kill Jesus. And which is, uh, you know, what the Jews ultimately ended up successfully doing to their, to their Messiah. And so what you could say with the immediate application of Micah uh, 5, 1 and 2 was, is that for that, that God was making the fact, he was showing them that even though destruction was coming for them, even though they were going to be smitten as a nation, that even though he had said earlier, your borders are going to be lost, all these things, terrible things are going to happen, you know what he still said? But you know what, Bethlehem, that ruler is still going to come from you. So God's showing, while God's showing them all this death and destruction that's coming for them, God's also giving them hope. God's giving them prophecy of a Messiah. And again, while we were, you know, this is prophetic about a physical nation, we don't think about this stuff anymore. We can make application to ourselves as individuals because of the fact that doom and destruction, death, hell has been pronounced upon all of us because of our sin. But we also have the prophecy that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We also have the gospel that has been given. We understand Jesus Christ paid for sins and that if we will call on him, it, that he will, he will impute righteousness to us immediately. But not only that, we still have prophecies coming for us because we believe in a resurrection. We believe in a coming kingdom that we will be a part of. We believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's all future for us. But we believe all these things. So um, we can take these prophecies and we can make a spiritual application to ourselves. And so uh, this Messiah, he wasn't, I, I like that what it says there too. It says, talking about this Messiah, this ruler, it says, whose going for, goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. So this Messiah was somebody who wasn't just somebody that's to come. And that, that's pretty cool too. This just shows how Jesus Christ himself 
is eternal. Jesus Christ did not get his start in Bethlehem because here it's prophesying about someone who's going to be born in Bethlehem and it's saying he's going to be your ruler, but it's also saying this person that's going to be your ruler, he's always been around. I mean, folks, right there is a very strong passage on the deity of Christ, on the fact that Jesus Christ himself is also eternal. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts, referring to Jesus, it was he that was with the church in the wilderness. Jesus Christ has always been Jesus Christ had walked the earth before, but understand when he came, when he was born, he, uh, that was him taking on the seed of Abraham. That was him being made a little lower than the angels. That was him becoming flesh like you and I, but who he was has always been. He is, Jesus Christ is also eternal and Micah 5, 2 a, a verse of prophecy that was so clear that even a bunch of lost scribes were able to figure it out also makes it very clear Jesus Christ has always been. So any, anybody who denies you know, that Jesus Christ is eternal has always been, I don't know what to tell those people when we have verses like Micah 5 too. Couldn't be any more clear. So verse 3 says, Therefore, he will give them up unto, until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And I want you to get a hold of this. I really wish we could spend a lot of time on this. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, but there's a lot of people will uh, disagree and argue with how to interpret Romans, or not Romans, Revelation chapter 12, about who the woman of Revelation chapter 12 is. And just understand, while there's a lot of debate out there, while this is something people can clearly disagree on it's a tough passage at the end of the day always remember my interpretation is right the rest of them are wrong all right and, and, and but no i uh i said i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure my interpretation is right on this and i think this verse in micah uh helps show this but notice again therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth i believe this is a reference to that woman She's going to be going through difficult times. We see later in the book of Daniel, it's talking about all this terrible times that Israel's going to go through until the Messiah comes. And so I, I don't have any doubt. I'll even, I even agree with the pre-tribbers to a certain extent that the woman in Revelation chapter 12 is Israel. I do believe that. And, and so in verse 3, it's talking about her travailing. That hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brothers shall return unto the children of Israel. And Israel was going to be in trouble. They were going to have wars. They were going to have all these difficulties until the Messiah came. And that's what happened in Revelation chapter 12. And so notice what it says. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and the seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast into the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne." 
And, and so, right there, I mean, I don't know how you can say that this isn't Israel. Now, there's people that are on our side when it comes to Israel that don't like the idea of this being Israel because the dispensational pro-Israel crowd, they jump to false conclusions based on the fact this woman is Israel. And understand, this woman is Israel, but they are jumping to false conclusions as a result of it because we are forgetting the fact that as a church today, we are Israel reformed. Okay? We, are, we are Israel reformed. So understand that this isn't a problem for our theology if this woman, that was Israel, God has, God has changed it. God has reformed it. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And so the thing is, when we look at Revelation 12 and we see what happens later, where the Antichrist is making war and going after the remnant of her seed and all that, people try to make that about a physical people. No, they, those people were cut off a long time ago. Okay? We are the ones who are a part of this today. The Jews who stayed true to their faith and accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they continued being a part of that. So it's very important to understand that. And I don't have time to go through the rest of Re uh, Revelation chapter 12, but uh, I am, I'm convinced that that is talking about Israel. And I don't think that creates any problem for our theology at all. I think it makes perfect sense. And so let's, let's go back to Micah in verse 4. And it says, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. So the Messiah, who is going to come from Israel, would have a kingdom that would go into all the world. Now, uh, another prophecy that I think we can connect to this, in Daniel chapter 2. Remember the uh, image of the, uh, or the vision of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw with the head of gold and that was made of silver, brass, uh, iron, and iron. But notice what it says in Daniel 2.34. It says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the, in, uh, the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And I wish we had time to connect some things in Revelation. Well, go ahead and turn to Revelation 17. Keep your finger in Micah 5, though, because I do, I do want to show you something. It's important that we understand this. But I believe that that, uh, and I think everybody would agree, that... Uh, rock that was cut out without hands that smote the feet of that image, that was Jesus Christ. And it talks about how he grew into a mountain. And often in prophecies, I think here in Daniel, and we're going to see it in Revelation, when it refers to these different mountains, these are references to kingdoms. And so this kingdom that is going to come from this child that's going to be born in Bethlehem, it's going to grow into all the world. Now, folks, that has happened spiritually. I mean, are we not a part of God's kingdom? I mean, remember, the kingdom was taken from Israel, given to another nation. And we believe we are a part of a spiritual kingdom, and it's all over the world. There are, there are churches, there are saved people in every nation. We see in Revelation 7, when the rapture comes, 
there's going to be people of every nation and kindred and tongue that are standing before the Lord in that day. How, how can that be? You know why? Because Jesus Christ came and spiritually, spiritually, he destroyed, you could say, he defeated those kingdoms of the devil. He has the keys of death and hell. Spiritually, he did all those things at his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And his kingdom spiritually has gone through all the world. And one of these days, we do believe in a physical fulfillment that's going to take place. But I, don't, I think without a doubt, that mountain is a reference to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are a part of that today. <clears throat> and don't get me wrong. I do believe in a coming earthly kingdom. I do believe in a physical ful fulfillment that's to come. But notice what it says in Micah 5, 5, before we look at Revelation 17. It says, And this man shall be the peace. When the Assyrians shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Notice that right there. I don't think, I don't, I think, I don't think what we're about to see is a coincidence. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. Now, I'm, t I'm telling you, this is a tough passage right here. But understand, that, let me tell you what I believe about this passage right here. He's obviously directly speaking about the Assyrians and what they were going to do to them in that day. But, Without a doubt, what is happening here with the Assyrians going after Israel is more than just a physical battle between physical kingdoms. This is a spiritual battle between spiritual kingdoms. Because remember what Satan is doing, that dragon was doing to that woman that was ready to del deliver a child? Now, under, when Jesus was born, what kingdom would we say was going after Jesus? we would say, well, the Roman kingdom. Now here, it's talking about this Assyrian kingdom. But then at the same time too, it, when the tribulation comes, what kingdom is it going to be? It's going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist. And understand, while these kingdoms have all had different heads over time, it's one spiritual kingdom. Okay? And that's why in Daniel, you see, the, you know, the, you see the, all those different beasts and then in Revelation, you see one beast that's kind of a combination of all those beasts. What's going on? In reality, it's always been the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the devil. And while the, and while the kingdom of the devil has had many different physical nations in charge of it at different times, it's always been the same kingdom. So what we're seeing here, you could say, is a spiritual battle. And notice it mentions... They're going to raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now, I don't, I don't think I'm going out and stre stretching anything. When we go to Revelation 17, and notice what it says in verse 8. It says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and shall go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Okay? And a lot, I believe that's referring to seven kingdoms. Just like the, the, the stone cut without hands, everybody would agree that stone that grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth, 
everyone would agree that's referring to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I believe these seven mountains are referring to seven earthly kingdoms, seven world kingdoms that have always made war with God's people. And it says, and there are seven kings. Remember what it says in Micah? It mentions the, um, the seven shepherds and eight principal men. It says and there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and another is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is of the eighth and is of the seven that goeth into perdition. So notice we have these seven kingdoms that are mentioned. We've got five that have already been. We've got one that is. And then we've got one that's going to continue a short space. I believe the one that was during that time was a reference to the Roman kingdom. I believe the seventh is going to be the next world kingdom that is to come. I believe that world kingdom is going to only go for a very short time. You know, the Roman Empire, these other empires, they lasted a really long time. But the seventh kingdom that's to come, it's only going to continue a very short space. It's going to be an earthly kingdom. But then we're going to have that eighth. That eighth that's going to come. And I believe that that's going to be when the man of sin or Satan himself kind of takes over it. And that's kind of why why there's a distinction And so just like the kingdoms in the past have all been raised up by men, and I believe the seventh kingdom will be raised up by a man, the Antichrist, whoever it is, you know, Jared Kushner, you know, Donald Trump, Benjamin Netanyahu, whoever you think it is. I believe these will be actual men. But then I believe at some point that kingdom will be given to Satan himself. And I think he, I think he is the eighth, and then that's when it really goes crazy, and that that's kind of how I think that plays out. But I think right here, what we're seeing here in Micah chapter five, this is a reference to that. What we're so what we're seeing here in Micah, it's very, it can be very confusing, but I, I would encourage you to go back and read through it again, and obviously a lot of it's speculation, but understand he's prophesying about. A physical kingdom coming after another physical kingdom. Assyrians coming after Israel. But I want you to think of the Assyrians as the spiritual kingdom of the devil that has always been, that used to be in Egypt, that has been, it used to be in Rome, that's going to be, that's probably in the United Nations right now or someplace like that. That, and then I want you to think about that spiritual kingdom is Israel, God's people. We are that kingdom today, and I believe the things it's describing here are a reference and understand the Messiah, Jesus Christ, eventually is going to utterly destroy that kingdom. That kingdom has not been utterly destroyed yet. Spiritually, you know, spiritually, it's still around. It's still doing a work. And, uh, and, but one of these days, Jesus is going to defeat it spiritually and he's going to defeat it physically as well. So, uh, I think that's what we're seeing here. So there's, there, we've seen a lot of different world kingdoms throughout history. And it does. It seems clear from Revelation, those kingdoms have always been led by Satan with the intent of destroying God's people. So while the prophet is talking about it, like it's the Assyrians, just understand it will be the kingdom of the beast in the end. When, when we see the kingdom of the beast rise up, 
Just understand the spirit that's behind it is the same spirit that was behind the kingdom of the Assyrians and the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of Greece and all these different people. And so uh, something that was not revealed at this time that God clearly revealed later in the New Testament, though, was the inclusion of the Gentiles in these promises. Because we can look at these prophecies of Micah and we can say it's all about Israel, it's all about Israel. Well, it's all about God's people. It's all about God's people. And the New Testament spells it out for us. It was not understood then that Gentiles would be included in that. So it's okay for us to look at these prophecies and say, hey, we got grafted in to the people of God. We've been grafted in. We are, we are no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We definitely can claim these promises for ourselves because it's never been about a bloodline. It's always been about a people of faith. So look at verse 7. It says, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of man. And so we do. We learn in Romans that the remnant are those who are of faith or the election of grace. So notice how he says it's the remnant of Jacob. It's not going to be all Jacob. It's not going to be everyone that descends from them. You know why? Because they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Okay? But there, there's always a remnant according to the election of grace. And we don't want to just ignore that when we read this passage. Paul revealed this to us later. And so without a doubt, we can make that application. And it says, uh, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. And so that remnant of Jacob, that remnant of Israel, you can say was saved as Pentecost. And you know what? They went through the whole world doing great works for God, bringing people to Him. I mean, understand, the early church was pretty much all Jews. And that evangelistic work that they started, that we are all uh, a part of, I mean, it was all started by that remnant of Israel. That th- Those believing Jews did do an amazing work for God, and we are all benefiting from that today. So verse 9 says, Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off the horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. And I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off the witchcrafts out of thine hand. And thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven image also will I cut off. And thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee. So will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen such as they have not heard. And interestingly enough, notice none of those things happened physically in the first century uh, or at the first coming of Christ. I mean, folks, are the witchcrafts gone from Israel? Are, Are the idols gone? I mean, folks, none of those things happened with Israel in the first century at the first coming of Christ. So on one hand, though, you could say, there's been a spiritual fulfillment already. Because again, those of us who are saved and have believed on Christ, we understand too, our body is the temple of God. And did you know 
that you can't get saved. You can't believe on Christ and have your faith in your idols too. You know, you can't just go and say, well, you know, I'm a believer in Baal, but I'm going to add Jesus Christ to that too. We all understand that, you know, when it comes to salvation, it's real easy to get saved, but you do have to repent of your false gods. You know, you do have to repent of whatever it is you were trusting in before. You have to do all that. And so those who are saved, these things are all gone from us. They're removed from us. But physically, none of these things have happened. So on the one hand, there's been a spiritual fulfillment, but we are looking for a physical fulfillment. I'm looking forward to the day when the idolatry is gone. I'm looking forward to the day when the sin is gone from this world. I think that's going to be a great time. But one important thing we can see in this chapter is how when it comes to kingdoms, that it isn't always about a physical or a geographical people, but these are spiritual kingdoms. And that's what people have got to get a hold of. Even in the Old Testament, we understand that these kingdoms that were out there, while they had a geographical location, while they had bloodlines, while they had earthly leaders, you had people like Pharaoh. You, know, you had people like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, these, these, were, these were real people that existed. We also understand that these were spiritual kingdoms. That's how they were able to come to power the way that they did. And just like there's always been these uh, spiritual kingdoms that are of Babylon, of Egypt, whatever you want to call it, there has always been a spiritual kingdom of heaven or of Israel or of the New Jerusalem or of the heavenly Mount Zion, whatever you want to call it. Those kingdoms have always been around. Now, if we want to find the spiritual kingdom and the spiritual people in the Old Testament, where are we going to go to find those people? Well, we're going to find them probably among the people of Israel because that's where most of your people of faith were. They had a lot of problems, but that's where most of your people of faith were. We see when Jesus brought in the new and better covenant, he said, hey, it's not about Jerusalem anymore. He got rid of the temple. He got rid of those things. But we understand that today, this is where it's at today, amongst God's people. But folks, are we a different kingdom? We are not a different kingdom than what was before. We are a part of that same kingdom. And I think that is one of the most terrible teachings that has crept into Baptist churches is this idea where we are separating ourselves from Israel. We're separating ourselves from the people of God. We're not supposed to do that. We are all connected. I heard, and there's a preacher that I know, it's kind of funny, but um, he actually preaches right about the fact that we are part of, we're connected to Israel. He preaches right, we are a part of the same kingdom. But you know what he calls dispensationalism? He calls it replacement theology. And, and he hates dispensationalism. And he always calls it replacement theology. And I, and I think he's doing that because replacement theology is like a bad word in churches and he's trying to make people hate dispensationalism. So it's like, man, I hope you succeed in making everybody hate dispensationalism. But can you stop calling it replacement theology? But here's, here's why he does that though. The reason he does that is because he believes there's always been one gospel. He believes there's always been one people of God. You know, he's right about all that. So these people who came along and said that, no, there's another people of God, he's like made that like a replacement. And so you know, it's, I, I wish you wouldn't call it that. I think it, I think it falls flat and it just confuses people. But at the same time, 
you know, I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's right about that. But the Bible does say, I'll close with this, Ephesians 6.11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ultimately, what we have going on in our world today is a spiritual conflict. We are fighting a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle that we are fighting, understand its leaders, its generals, they've been around fighting since the beginning of time. The same people, the same entities that were behind the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, will be behind this one world empire that is to come. This, this kingdom of the beast, of the Antichrist, it's the same thing. And we are the same thing. We are the same spiritual people. We are the same spiritual army that has always been around since men began to call upon the Lord. So hopefully uh, that was a help to you. Micah 5, it's a, definitely a deep passage. There's a lot of deep stuff in there, but hopefully uh, you learned some things from that. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for uh, uh, this chapter and the amazing prophecies, Lord, and the interesting connections it has to the book of Revelation. I pray, Lord, you help us to remember we're not uh, fighting flesh and blood, but these are spiritual battles we're fighting. And I pray you'll help us to arm up spiritually. I pray you'll help us to walk uh, in the spirit and I pray it'll help us to be effective um, in this battle help us to stay in the fight and trying to uh, bring people to you and to change hearts and minds in your name as we pray Amen.